Well, hello. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this uh, weekly Scripture program called Deep in Scripture. You're hearing us on EWTN Radio, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International in Central Ohio. Uh, we uh, sponsor this program because of our love for Scripture and our love for D- Jesus Christ, and we believe that to become deep in Scripture and deep in history and, and deep in Christ is what we're called to do. We believe all three of those are important, uh, being deep in history, knowing where uh, our faith has come from, knowing the history behind our faith. But of course, this is alongside our need to be deep in the Word of God, uh, which is a part of that gift we have, deep in Scripture. In our mind, it certainly does not mean sola scriptura, which is an individualistic uh, interpretation of the Scripture guided by whatever we think is important or whatever is kind of pressuring our life at any given time, or guided by whichever creed we've decided to buy into, but guided by the very teacher through whom we receive the scriptures, and that is the church. And so that's one of the goals of this program. This program is also connected to a website, deepinscripture.com, which has lots of things that we'd love to draw your attention to. Each week in this program, I invite a friend or someone who uh, would like to share with us a favorite verse. And uh, our guest for this week is Dr. Francis Beckwith, uh, and he's chosen 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. I'll read that in a moment. Uh, Dr. Beckwith is a professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University. He teaches in the departments of philosophy and political science, as well as at the J.M. Dawson Institute of Church-State Studies, where he served as its associate director from July 2003 until January 2007. He's also a resident scholar in Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. He has five earned degrees, including a PhD in philosophy from Fordham University. Uh, On May 5th, 2007, Dr. Beckwith resigned as president of the Evangelical Theological Association. A week earlier, he had rejoined the Catholic Church of his birth, which he, he left at age 14. His journey back to the church Catholic faith is recounted in his new book, Return to Rome, Confessions of an Evangelical Catholic. And uh, uh, 2008, 2009, he served in the faculty of the University of Notre Dame as the Mary Ann uh, Remick Senior Visiting Fellow in Notre Dame's Center for Ethics and Culture. He uh, grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, the eldest of four children. And uh, his website, if you go to our website, deepinscripture.com, there's a link to his website, which is francisbeckwith.com. I'd encourage you to go to that, find out about his writings and his, his uh, speaking as well as his teaching. It's a great privilege to have uh, Dr. Beckwith join us. I've had him as a guest on the Journey Home program twice, I think, at, at this time. Uh, but he's chosen as his text, First Peter 3, 14, through 17. And I'm going to read that in a moment. I guess before I go there, just remind you, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to give us a call, you can do so at uh, 800-664-5110. Or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. And also, if you go to our website and click on the, the very top link of the page, you can watch me sitting here in our newly uh, remodeled studio here at the Coming Home Network International offices. Now, the verse that, that uh, Francis has chosen is a, is a great verse. Uh, 
all of First Peter, the book of First Peter, is, is really neat. There's lots of meat in that passage. I think in many ways what Peter was writing to those uh, Christians who he called the diaspora, you know, those who um, were separated for a variety of reasons, uh, is like writing to us today, where sometimes it, it seems like you feel like you're in a diaspora in a culture where there are so many other voices of contradictory understandings of what is true or what isn't true, whether there's even truth or not. And even sometimes you're running into Christians, supposed Christians who call themselves brothers in Christ, yet share such radically different views about often very important issues. And uh, Dr. Beckwith is very much involved in the pro-life movement. And here's a good example uh, that not all Christians agree on the issues of pro-life. And so it, sometimes you feel like you're in a diaspora. And sometimes it's a result of just taking a stand for what is true, what is good, what is right, what is clearly according to the Word of God, according to the teaching of the church, what has been so solidly held for 2,000 years. When you take a stand for that, yet you end up experiencing suffering and persecution. And so the tendency is to back down. Do you, in fact, follow the teaching that you know is true as you, as you understand truth within the rule of faith guided by the church. And if, you, and if you've broken from the church and you want to fall on your own conscience and let your conscience be your guide, well, what do you do when you find seemingly sincere followers of Jesus Christ interpreting the same Scripture passage in a radically different way? What do you do when you're persecuted for your perspective? It would be easier to back down and just go with the flow, jump on the bandwagon. But Peter is talking here about our need to stand to what is true. And so let me read this passage. I'll begin with verse 13 through verse 17. That's chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Then after this, we'll take a break and, and Dr. Beckwith will join us. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence, and keep your conscience clear, so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our seventh annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year we will begin on the rock looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. 
For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. And as you just heard in the break about the upcoming Deep in History conference, uh, that's this weekend. That's only a couple days away. And I can guarantee it's going to be a great weekend focusing on the importance of the authority of the church. We'll look at it historically. And there's great speakers. And if you haven't signed up, again, go to the website deepinhistory.com or you can go to the regular Coming Home Network website, chnetwork.org, or you can give us a call at 740-450-1175. We'd love to have you join us this weekend. Well, joining us for this program is uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith. Hello, Dr. Beckwith. Hi, Marcus. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad we were able to catch you on a on a day between classes in which you were, uh, uh, like you said, you had office hours, but you took this time to join us on the radio. Thanks a lot. Oh, you're welcome. And I know Scripture is important to you. I mean, there you were before you came back to the church. You were the uh, uh, the president of the Evangelical Theological Association. Yeah, that's right, uh, which uh, uh, ETS is... Uh, 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 statement of belief is the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. Exactly. And that is the, if there's one thing that unites evangelicals, uh, it is that view of Scripture. That's right. In fact, one of my theological professors from Gordon-Conwell, I won't mention his name, was a, a, a shining light in the, the ETA. Yes. Right? And, uh, uh, you know, very, very committed to uh, infallibility of Scripture, though he wasn't open to the authority of the Catholic Church, but he believed very much in, in the infallibility of Scripture. And, uh, and, I, and I owe him a lot for his, uh, for his commitment to Scripture, his love for Scripture, which, uh, which I gained when I studied under him. Uh, I, I feel the same way about my mentors. Uh, yeah. I, I think if not for uh, the number of uh, evangelical scholars, friends, pastors who had uh, not only a high view of Scripture but a deep love for Christ, I, I wouldn't be where I am today. And uh, yeah. I think the Holy Spirit, as Vatican II and the Catechism clearly point out, the Holy Spirit works even with our separated brethren to, yeah. to uh, elevate and to uh, uh, hold Christ up. Yeah, and at the core of that is recognizing that by baptism, we're very united. Yes. We, we really are united. Uh, there's a division be because uh, we're divided because we haven't all accepted the authority of the Church, the authority of the Holy Father, the authority of sacred tradition, but yet our baptism in a very real way unites us mm. in the one body of Christ. We just have a lot of work to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to hopefully we'll be united in charity. Uh, Francis, all right. Um, there's lots of verses you could choose, and you chose this for our discussion. Uh, maybe in general, why, why this particular section of scripture? You know, uh, when when you, when you invited me to to do this, uh, I think over a month ago, I uh, this was actually the first first set of verses or passage of scripture that came to mind, and for a variety of reasons, uh, and 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 mostly uh, having to do with my own personal pilgrimage. As a Christian, uh, as a youngster, as a very young uh, young Catholic who became an evangelical and then re eventually returned to the church, I had always had an interest in more deeply understanding my faith and to be able to give an answer to people who who asked about my faith. 
but I also uh, wanted to live a life of holiness and to give that answer in a way that is both winsome, uh, intelligent, uh, as well as uh, loving to those who are questioning my hope. And so you find in, in this particular passage uh, all those elements. You have the obligation that Christians have to answer people who raise questions about their faith. You also have uh, something about the proper attitude that we should have towards those individuals to do so with gentleness and reverence. And there's also a section in, in there about uh, doing the right thing, uh, even if... Uh, even if, in fact, uh, uh, you, you know, it results in, in harm to you. Yep. Uh, so you have here the Christian ethic, uh, not only the Christian ethic in terms of um, uh, our inner life, but how we should treat others, uh, but you also have uh, something that, um, uh, that is so countercultural today, and that is the, the understanding to suffer for righteousness' sake. I mean, we live in a culture today that says that, that raises the question oftentimes, uh, should we do something that, uh, that, that in fact may harm us even if it's right? Yeah. <laughs> and yet Christianity, the, the, Peter, the, the gospel says, you know, it is better to suffer evil than to inflict it. And that is deeply against our narcissistic, self-centered culture that, that really dominates uh, the Western world today. And Peter's letter, you know, we don't know exactly at, at what stage in the, in the early first century of the church this was written. You know, we presume it was in probably the, at least the second half, of course, uh, of the first century. But what we do know is it's within the first generation of the church. Mm -hmm. And these first, I mean, just imagine the first generation Christians with this radically different theology, radical from any background they would have come from, whether it was Jewish or Greek, pagan, mm -hmm. um, and the resistance and persecution that they received. Um, with this new idea, they couldn't say, well, my dad and my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they all believe this, so I feel, you know, I feel united with my family, my background. I mean, these people were first-timers. Yeah. yeah. It is, it is one of the um, things that we often forget about. In fact, uh, here at Baylor, I'm, uh, I'm going to be uh, I'm teaching a course in, in philosophy of law this semester, and one of the issues that that comes up is the relationship between church and state. And one of the things I tell my students is, you know, we can look back at our predecessors in the history of, of the Christian church and sometimes be critical on how they handled certain matters, but you have to remember, a lot for them it was the first time <laughs> in many cases. Uh, imagine, for example, being a fourth or fifth century Christian uh, in a culture that had once been dominated by paganism, and now all of a sudden, every other person's a Christian. You've got to figure out how to run things. It's not like it's not like there were there was anyone before you. And so, any sort of you know act, act, you know we, anything they did in the past that we may think, well, I would have done it better or differently. Remember, uh, we have the benefit of their experience now, and, and they didn't have that. I mean, they had the Holy Spirit. They had different issues. Uh, but yeah, that's. I, I think you're you're absolutely right. When we read this passage from First Peter, we have to remember 
the historical context. Yeah. This was incredible what was going on. And you mentioned the, the church and state thing. I mean, that is a, a wonderful example because today that issue is constantly brought before us in a variety of different views, even politicians who seem to be the authorities on this when sometimes I don't think they have a clue of the historical background because, yes. uh, you know, when you look at when that uh, clause was added to the Constitution, the first part of it, it was all about the basic issue was that there will no longer be a religious requirement for uh, people to be in, in office. That's right. That was the issue. And actually, I was talking not long ago in Worcester, Massachusetts, and as I was looking at some of the history, Worcester, Massachusetts voted against the Constitution <laughs> because they were afraid that without the religious clause, papists of all things could become politicians in the United States. That's right. You had the, well, the Congregationalists, both in Connecticut and Massachusetts, really dominated <laughs> the political structures then. And in fact, some of the people persecuted were Baptists, as I'm, I'm often mm -hmm. told here uh, at Baylor, which is a Baptist institution. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the reason was to allow people of all faiths to be involved, but not what it has evolved into in our country. Yeah. And that's when we lose track of the, the foundations of the heritage upon which the ideas were built. And That's when, right. when we're looking at this passage, understanding the context. And there's one other thing in the background that I think, especially from a Protestant background, that I didn't always see. Because in my particular Calvinist, I say it with that kind of a, a, a I mean, because I was such a cutting edge Calvinist, you know, not, not in the sense that I was so new, but I mean, it was cutting. Yeah. You know, five point Calvinist, uh, you're in the church because God predestined you to be in the church. You don't not even sure you are in. Only God knows. Blah 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 mm -hmm. blah. But we didn't always take at face value the things that Jesus taught. Yes. Because often things that Jesus taught were before the resurrection. So, but here we see almost a direct illusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely. The the the, the idea of. Uh, pick up your cross and follow me, yep. is deep, is, is in this passage. I mean, this is the thing that, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the teachings of, of Jesus. When I became Catholic, uh, one of the areas of scriptural analysis that was very uh, helpful to me was to read uh, the, the epistles, including obviously the Pauline epistles, as well as the pastoral ones, as well as the uh, Peter and the others, that uh, how that when you read Jesus and you see uh, the importance of following him, not merely in, in accepting him, that's obviously part of it, yep. to, uh, to accept him on faith, but to walk, to follow him, to pick up your cross and follow me. And I mean, there was just this, I think it was this past Sunday, the gospel reading uh, where two of the apostles say, we want to sit on your right and left. And yeah. Jesus said, are you willing to drink this cup? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, that doesn't sound like, uh, I mean, that sounds like, you know, this is serious stuff. Yeah. Well, this uh, first verse, 14, in this, well, well I read that uh, behind it, but there was verse 13 that talked mm. about, you know, this, you know, stepping out. There, who's going to hurt you if you do what's right? You know, yeah. and the underlining of that is Jesus' statement on, you know, don't fear him, uh, only for him who can, you know, how's the verse go? You know, only fear him who can, can cast you into hell. That's right. That's the only person to fear. Um, and that's kind of the background to verse 13. But verse 14, but even if I, if you do suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That hmm. sounds like in the background of 
Peter's yeah. mind is the memory of when Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, yes. sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's right there. It, it's right there. And yeah. what, what what is powerful, I think, about the Beatitudes, at least the way I interpret them, is that they're, they're a staircase beginning with poverty of spirit and mourning for your sins and then humility and then growing in righteousness and, and all of this so that persecution for your righteousness sake are people that have grown in their faith who are willing to take a bold stand on what is true. Yes. And that's what's happening here. And people are wondering, well, maybe they wrote to Peter and say, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do we handle this suffering? Uh, I don't know where you live, uh, yeah. but you live around folk that teach that if you're a really strong, faithful Christian, you won't suffer, you won't be sick, and you'll be wealthy. Yeah, there are there are folks like that. Um, now, um, uh, some of the uh, health and wealth ministers, yep. we got some of those folks, and obviously most people in the country are aware of that, but yeah, you have this... Uh, this idea that you know, if you become a Christian, then all your troubles will vanish. Uh, that is not the message yep. of uh, of the gospel. The gospel is that you will be saved and justified, and that means that there's going to be a work that needs to be done from the inside out, and it's not going to be pretty sometimes. Yeah, yep. that uh, that wonderful book by C.S. Lewis um, mm. uh, of Screw Tape Letters. Yes, where when when the uh, when the underling demon failed and the man became a christian mm. then the the next assault was to start casting doubt turning their eyes anything that could resist the could cause the man to doubt what he had con, uh, had committed his life to yes and in if you look in this passage i mean this is the spiritual battle that's being referred to here also when you're going to take a stand for Jesus, the battle comes. That's right. That's right. You find in here uh, not only um, uh, the appropriate way to suffer, so to speak, you also have uh, something that was instrumental in my own spiritual development, and that is the whole idea of giving an answer, uh, something that uh, initially attracted me to some of the folks that I think you're probably aware of, Marcus, like Walter Martin and Norm oh, yeah. Geisler and a lot of these these evangelicals that were doing apologetics. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, uh, for a lot of folks, especially in a culture today that is largely hostile to the Christian point of view, and of course the Catholic point of view in particular, uh, we have to equip people to be able to answer uh, yeah. for the hope that is within them, but also to do so with reverence and gentleness. And, and I will confess that I've often... Not done the, the latter part as well as I should. <laughs> you know, I was just um, uh, just this morning reading, of all things, Calvin's Institutes in preparation for a talk I'm giving this weekend. Mm. My talk is on First Timothy 3.15, the, the mm. church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And I was looking how Calvin interpreted that passage. And what was interesting is that what he does is he completely redefines the church. Mm-hmm that the marks of the church are not one holy Catholic apostolic, but the marks of the church actually following Luther are good preaching and sacraments. Hmm. And any church that has good preaching of the word and is, is uh, ad, you know, correctly 
celebrating the sacraments is a church. Mm. Well, I mean, he just opened the door for the bazillion churches we have today because he also said that as soon as you decide that someone isn't teaching what's true, you can leave that because it's not a church. Yeah. Well, when you, as this is in passage 15, prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you account for the hope that is in you, I don't think when Peter was writing that he anticipated what was going to happen as a result of the divisions in the church over the 2,000 years that you're going to to take a stand for what has been held to be true for 2,000 years. You're going to have a thousand different voices out there. That's right. Contending against you and saying that you're crazy. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, Marcus, that. Uh, the whole idea of of the hope i su- i suspect and that peter was talking about was a hope that was shared that it just wasn't sort of the the subjective individualist hope of the one christian who may be reading this letter but the hope that they all share as being part of the body of christ and so uh you know don't want to pick on calvin too much but right, right. but i do think that um uh in the reason he wants to retain the Nicene Creed as normative. The problem is he wants to change the understanding of what the authors of that creed had intended one apostolic church to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If 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 the definition of a church is one that preaches good mm-hmm. and celebrates the sacraments right, and in the end, who who is to judge that? Well, I am. Yeah. Well, that's that's the foundation for jumping from one church to the next because you like the preaching here better than the preaching there, or I like the way they do the Lord's Supper here versus they don't do it here. I mean, everybody decides for themselves what is a church. And so taking a stand to give a reason for the hope that is in us as Catholics, yeah. um, you know, we've got a thousand different voices out there. If only they could see that they are contradicting themselves everywhere. That's but, right. But as you said, our call is to do it with gentleness and reverence. We're going to take a break, Francis. When I come back, I want to back up just a little bit, and I want you to talk about what Peter addressed first, mm. maybe as the foundation for this ability to be prepared to make a defense. He says in the beginning of verse 15, in your hearts reverence Christ as mm. Lord. What did he mean by that? Mm. In your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. We'll be right back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Dr. Francis Beckwith, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Sunday Night Live with Father Benedict Groeschel. As the expression of our faith, the creed should be lived with our whole hearts, not just recited. Monsignor James O'Connor joins Father Benedict to discuss the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. That's on the next Sunday Night Live, only on EWTN. Sunday Night Live is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow Him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, 
simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, our host. I'm joined today by Father Francis Beckwith. And uh, Francis, before we jump into that question, I just want to remind the audience, your website, uh, francisbeckwith.com, uh, you can find that link on deepinscripture.com. Uh, and if you go to that, a lot of information about your your background, your speaking engagements, your teaching and books. And, and you do mention two books there, um, uh, uh, Return to Rome, which is your, your expression of your return to the church. You also have Defending Life, a moral and legal case against abortion choice. I, I read that book a while back. Mm-hmm when I was doing the uh, hosting for the March of Life for EWTN. And if I remember right, that the, the, what's key about that book is that you're arguing um, this issue not merely from, well, the church says this or the Bible says this, but you're looking at it from the angle of moral legal possession. That, that's right. It's a, it's a kind of a natural law defense of the pro-life point of view. And uh, the purpose of it uh, is to equip pro-lifers to be able to uh, give a reason <laughs> for the hope that lies within them in the public square. And uh, I was fortunate to have it published by Cambridge University Press, which... Uh, oh, that's great. Um, it's, you know, a great academic press. And in fact, I, I, I've got to credit one of my former graduate students, Hunter Baker, who's now a professor at Houston Baptist University. He had read the manuscript and told me, he says, you can't, you got to, you got to send this to an, uh, an academic publisher. This has got to get out there. And so I, for if not for his encouragement, I probably would have, you know, settled for, you know, a more popular press, which is fine. But in terms of having the opportunity to influence the wider exactly. academic world, it's it's been a real uh, it's been a real blessing. Uh, in fact, I just got an email from a guy that's critical of my arguments. He's actually a friend at the University of Kansas, and he he told me that he had created a new acronym to describe the view that I defend, and he said, "Now you're famous in philosophy because." <laughs> And it was sort of funny because, um, you know, I said I'd held this argument for years, but uh, it gets apparently being published by Cambridge made a difference. So, <laughs> Well, it also says you've got a new book coming out, Politics for Christians. And I, in, in a sense, I almost that almost sounds like an oxymoron. Yeah. Well, it's, it's in a, you know, it's a book that um, it's in a series that I've, I'm editing with J.P. Moreland, who's a philosopher at Biola University. He's an evangelical. It's a, a series of books. Uh, dealing with Christian worldview integration. And we actually have Catholic and Protestant authors in the series. Uh, we have um, uh, one just come out, came out on education, and then the one on politics. Uh, what, I wanted, what I do in that book is to try to uh, offer uh, to Christians how to think about political issues and, and how do we defend our, our point of view in the public square scripturally, uh, taking into consideration all the things that uh, mm-hmm. that the Bible teaches us about human nature and the obligation we have to our neighbors. It would seem to me that for any Christian that is discerning a call to politics, I mean, it's a rough road. Yeah. It's hard to get elected in, in our relativistic culture. Um, but that verse, that part of that verse that I mentioned before the break seems to be an underlying commitment to anyone that is going to take a stand on their faith. In your hearts, reverence Christ mm. as Lord. 
Why did Peter need to say that to these Christians? Boy, that's a that's a that's a great question. You know, I've been thinking about that, and uh, what what occurred to me when I was preparing for this interview is the the Lord's Prayer, uh, the first petition, "Hallowed be Thy name," mm-hmm. and that has a lot of implications not only for honoring. God the Father, and in this case, obviously, God the Son. Mm-hmm. But it, when talking about in your heart, it, it doesn't merely mean uh, placing Christ first intellectually. It means, in fact, to teach the Word and to live the Word. Mm-hmm. That is, to revere Christ in your heart in terms of your holiness. I, I think one of the things that's, that, that sometimes gets lost uh, Many of us, as I mentioned, who read this as a kind of, you know, be an apologist type passage, is how much Peter puts, how much emphasis Peter puts on the example we set uh, for our non-Christian friends. That is, revere Christ in your heart, be holy, uh, set an example, do it with uh, uh, gentleness and um, uh, and reverence. Uh, uh, there's a the, the idea here is that that that. Uh, when we we place Christ first in our hearts, then we revere Him. That it's not merely, uh, you know, claiming that He's our Lord, but to actually live it. Yeah, yeah. That uh, when I've led Bible studies, uh, sometimes I I like to do a, a technique uh, that I've called uh, reduced in the minimum and then interpret to the max, which which is kind of like take a, a statement and and reduce it down to its most simple statement. Then think about it and interpret it, study it, and, <clears throat> and then start adding back words and ask yourself, okay, why did Peter, for example, need to add that word? Uh, yeah. And, you know, he could have just made the sentence, but in your heart's reverence Christ, period. Yeah. The idea of reverence Christ as Lord, yeah. I think is significant in that first generation of Christians, particularly, who, you know, the Jews, the idea of reverencing any human being as Lord, which in the Old Testament was the word used to replace Yahweh. I mean, it was the word for Adonai, Lord, Sovereign God. Uh, That was actually the issue that led Jesus to the cross. Yes. The audacity to accept that title. Um, And then for the Greeks and the Romans, you have this issue of Caesar being Lord or, or, uh, you know, and that led the issue of the persecution. So, I mean, here Peter is, again, in our modern sense, you know, who is Lord of our life? Yes. And what is it that sets the standard for us, uh, that determines what's true, sets the priorities? Um, and, you know, he's building the foundation for the ability to be able to do what's at the end of that passage, which is to treat those that differ from us with gentleness and reverence. Because we don't have the first part of that verse going on in our hearts, we can't, in all honesty, do the last part of that verse. That's right. That's right. You know, the uh, one of the uh, uh, most difficult things uh, the years I've taught, uh, taught Bible studies was to explain to uh, folks who attend the studies on how sometimes the authors, and even Jesus did this, would not explicitly say something, but say it in a way that the hearers understood, 
but it wasn't in a way that was sort of obnoxious <laughs> and you know aggressive. So, for example, Jesus doesn't actually ever come out and say explicitly, "I am the Jehovah of the Old Testament," <laughs> right. but he does say it. Uh, Peter's doing something very similar here, and you're right in terms of both its political and theological implications. Politically, this is scandalous yep. in Rome. Uh, theologically. It's scandalous because of the Judaism of which Christianity arises. But it's also scandalous for the Greeks in terms of philosophy. Here you're saying that a, a, a human being who had physical characteristics is Lord. Uh, this is, comes out of a philosophical tradition that says that the physical world is inferior. And here the God of the universe became incarnate. And not only that, he can live in our hearts. I mean, it's, it's a, the implications are, are, are astounding historically. He, he calls us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Now, Francis, mm. I can't remember what your particular tradition was when you were an evangelical. Mm. But I know mine was, I didn't use the word hope very often. I more often use the word assurance. Yes. You know, and to this day, I still, that the idea that I preached and taught and believed for so many years, once saved, always saved, still is there in me, though I recognize intellectually that um, I'm called every day by grace to live in obedience of faith. But talk about the word hope. Mm. and how significant that word is from a Catholic perspective so we understand it accurately. Yeah, from, from a Catholic perspective, the, the word hope has a, has a, has a kind of uh, future tense aspect to it. That is, it's, it's eschatological. It refers to that which we are going to acquire or receive uh, at the eschaton, at the end. But the hope is within us now. And so you have God's grace working in us now, uh, and part of that, uh, that, that grace provides us with the confidence of this future. But it's not uh, a kind of um, intellectual certitude, uh, you know, oh, I can simply, you know, live my life any way I want, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm going to get heaven. It, in fact, the, the way I put it in Return to Rome, uh, Catholics believe that, that it's important to get to heaven, but it's just as important to get heaven into us. <laughs> that is, the hope is within us. That is, we have this, uh, this longing, this desire for this eschaton, this future, uh, where we're fully purified, but that hope is within us. So we are both, you know, Christ is both present in us now, and he's also the ideal that we're supposed to achieve, but not through our own power, but through his grace. I mean, that's the great mystery of the Christian journey through yeah. one's life. But, um, you know, in, in, a, in one of the, and this is another aspect of, of, of I think, of this, this passage that is, again, countercultural. Uh, we, we live in an age uh, largely shaped by modern philosophy, which has pretty much said that unless you have sort of absolute certainty for something, you're not justified or have warrant to believe that it's true. Uh, 
the Christian message is we have hope and confidence uh, built on faith. And part of that uh, journey is to draw closer to Christ. It's not, uh, you know, there, there's going to be, as, as Christ himself promised, struggles. But the hope is within us. And I think that's, uh, uh, to a lot of um, non-Catholics, that sounds kind of strange, uh, because we, in fact, do believe our faith is true. Uh, but our faith isn't mere intellectual assent. It's something that uh, we clearly believe, but it's also something that's built on hope, a hope of a future uh, with Christ, and one that uh, in which we cooperate on the journey. The uh, You mentioned earlier that um, the political... Uh, and cultural aspects of, of the proclamation of Christ as Lord, the reverence mm-hmm. him. And in this issue of hope, of course, at the time, um, the audacity of their hope, just as you've expressed it, in the midst of yeah. where everyone else placed their hope, whether it was many Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection or Jews that believed in uh, a more of a pharisaical uh, legalism or the Greeks in their view of hope, if there was any, um, uh, and bringing it to today, yeah. you mentioned modern philosophy. Well, yeah. we live in, I think, in a culture that also has this hope in progress. Yes, yes. You know, there's this assurance that, that, you know, we're on this certain part of evolution, and by it's just given that things are going to get better, and that's the progress we live in. We're, we're progressing in this improvement of humanity we're more intelligent now than we've ever been, um, you know, and that whatever, if there's any problem out there, we as humanity are destined to solve it. Yeah, part of that, uh, the, the other assumption that's tied into that is this, this view that technological progress piggybacks on moral progress. And so we tend to think, you'll hear people say things like, my students will say this once in a while, oh, that's old-fashioned, or... Uh, that's uh, that's uh, what uh, you know. That that's so 1980s. Or, or they'll, they'll say something uh, uh, like, you know, why don't you join the 21st century? Or the, the assumption <laughs> is that somehow, as we technologically progress, somehow our moral insights are just as good. And that, of course, is there's no basis for that at all. Uh, yeah. it, it is also part of a of a of a of a heresy, which is called historicism, uh, the view that somehow uh, the mere passage of time correlates with uh, moral and political insight. And that's certainly not the case. Now, within Catholicism, we believe in doctrinal development, but that's different from the view that somehow the mere passage of time uh, gives you something that you didn't have before in terms of moral insight. I know Chesterton really took that to task. Oh, Chester, it's brilliant. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of, I think in Orthodoxy, he um, he takes on George Bernard Shaw yep. oh, yeah. on that very point. Um, uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the um, uh, there's a George Bernard Shaw play where, um, uh, where the serpent says, um, uh, some men dream dreams and ask why, and I say, I dream dreams and ask why not. And of course, that's usually attributed to Robert Kennedy. <laughs> it actually, he got that, apparently his speechwriter got that from Bernard, George Bernard Shaw, oh, and it's actually the, that. the question that the serpent asks Eve. 
<laughs> oh, and so yeah, telling. it is, is remarkable. And I'll tell you how I found that out. <laughs> uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, yep. uh, twelve years ago, was speaking at Loyola Law School in Southern California, and I was in the audience, and he began with that quote, and he ended. Uh, by saying everybody here thinks that was Robert Kennedy. Actually, that was the serpent to Eve, and he turned around and walked away from the podium. That it was is, just classic. That is amazing. Oh, yeah. God, I'd love to get the text for that. It wouldn't it be neat if you could somehow go through and do the research and come up with the line of quotes that in the in in the nineteen tens you would find someone that said, Oh, that's so nineteenth century and yeah. then in the nineteen thirties, oh that's so that's so first decade, you know, yeah. or the nineteen fifties, oh that's so the thirties and the nineteen eighties, oh that's so the sixties and, and it just shows this ignorance yeah, and the, the the blind buying of this falsehood. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of it, what it does, by the way, and this gets us right back to the to, to giving a hope, for the, yep. giving uh, an answer or uh, uh, defense for the hope that lies within us, is uh, a lot of Christians, and Catholics in particular, get intimidated when people, uh, let's say, when we discuss, let's say, our view of human life or our view of marriage, and we'll, you know, People will say, "Well, the culture's against you. You know, people, the the culture's moving in this direction." Uh, we have to be prepared to give an answer for that. Uh, you know, first off, uh, the truths of human nature are not determined by time. Mm-hmm. They're they're eternally true. That is, they've always been true uh, because God had made us a certain way, and we have to uh, present reasons why, in fact, that's a legitimate way to think on these matters. But oftentimes, and you we've seen this uh, especially with. Uh, people in the church that are progressives uh, and li- and liberals who are sort of get intimidated by the general culture and acquiesce at every point because they really themselves have never developed ways to deal with uh, these uh, these ideas which are ultimately hostile uh, to the uh, view of human beings that one finds uh, within the church. All right, let's uh, we're going to take another break. When we come back uh, for the remaining minutes, let's. Um deal with verse 16 mm. keep your conscience clear mm. so that when you are abused those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame let's look at this the importance of that statement by Peter thank you for listening to deep in scripture this is your host Marcus Grody I'm joined by Dr. Francis Beckwith and you're hearing this on EWTN your global catholic radio network The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, also the host of the Journey Home program on EWTN. I'm joined 
uh, by uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith. Let me remind you that if you ever want to contact us, go to deepinscripture.com or to chnetwork.org. You'll find the emails, the phone numbers. We'd love to hear any of your comments about this program. And, um, and Francis, thank you for joining us again. You know, this verse 16 is so crucial. Uh, yeah. To our witness, keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, that that particular passage, um, and I will just, from my own uh, experience uh, right after I returned to the church, it was really tough to not respond <laughs> Uh, in negative ways or, you know, angry ways at some folks that said some of the meanest and nastiest things. And the one thing that really kept me afloat, I think it had to be the Holy Spirit, because my natural reaction, Marcus, is to just, you know, push back. (laughs) And the one thing that I've gotten emails from people who have said, the way you conducted yourself really in light of all these comments was a witness and and that you know got me choked up when i read stuff like that because it's certainly not me and and i think what peter is saying here is that you know you're going to be persecuted and and you're going to be accused of all sorts of things and you're never really going to you you can't you can't really defend yourself with words because it sounds it's really it's tough to because you're defending yourself (laughs) But the only way you can really defend yourself, in, in, a, in a sense, is to live a Christian life. And so when people accuse you of being a bad person, your witness will put them to shame. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to when Christ talked about heaping hot coals upon people's heads. That is, you uh, are going to act in a way to give them no excuse. Yeah, the, you know, when you, I mean, really we need to constantly be reminded that we stand before God in grace. That's really it. Everything we have, we've received by his mercy. I mean, that's how Peter began his letter back in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, by this, by his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Mm. You know, and he goes on and on in reminding us that we have this by his mercy. And when we encounter others who don't understand it, who fight back, who are abused, they are someone who Christ loved. That's right. You know, the, the image I, I, I think of when I read this verse is, is Christ before Pilate. Yes. Where he's, you know, Pilate asks us what truth is, and, and Jesus gives him, you know, these one word, largely very brief answers. And, 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 and this, you know, Christ conducts himself uh, <laughs> as somebody, you know, is a humble servant. And you look back, and I've, I've asked my students this, um, if you were in Christ's position, what would you do? And you know, a lot of them was, I would defend myself. But looking back in history, who would you rather be? Uh, would you rather be a martyr who tortures tyrants, or a martyr tortured by tyrants, or uh, a tyrant who tortures martyrs? Yeah. 
you know, <laughs> the, the issue is what sort of person do you want you to be? And the image that we give as we seek to show people what Jesus is like. Now, yeah. and it, isn't it true, you know, we've got like one minute to go, that, that second half of this verse, how true that is today. They were not being reviled for their bad behavior. That's right. Reviled for their good behavior in Christ. That's right. I mean, think about today, people that take a stand for what's right and true, they're the ones being reviled by those in our culture. And people are looking so close, too, and this is why it's so important and it, it, that, that, we, that we conduct our lives as we preach, even though obviously the gospel is true regardless of how we act. Nevertheless, how we act does influence people, and sometimes they're looking for any excuse not to uh, join the church, and we don't want to give them that excuse. In fact, the end of that verse where he says that they might be put to shame, yes. that can be interpreted as, as if that's what I'm trying to do. I want to make, you know, I'm going to get them. But that's not the point. It's no. almost like when, when Paul was sitting the man outside the church, remember? Yes. So that he might awaken to where he's at. That's right. That's that the, right. You, you, I, I, I've met so many people over the years who have come to Christ, either become Protestants from just sort of a non-Christian background or become Catholics, and how the witness of a person and the way they conducted their lives meant just as much as giving intellectually important answers. Well, Francis, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture today. I want to remind, while I still have you here, uh, what's the name of that new book you're coming out with? It's called Politics for Christians. All right. And... Uh, um, I, it's not available yet, but um, maybe another word about your conversion book. How's that been received? You know, it's it's you know it's it, it's difficult to say. I've you know I've been obviously looking at reviews here and there, and yeah. um, you know it's. Uh, I'm more interested in a friend who who could never believe in your desire to become Catholic. Has it uh, opened up any hearts? Well, yes. In fact. Uh, I've gotten a few emails from friends, uh, one of whom's Anglican, who is after yesterday's announcement and after having read my book, he says, I'm only one reason away from becoming Catholic. <laughs> and I actually think he's pretty much there, but uh, I don't want to tell him that. That's right. Or mention his name on the air. But, <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, Dr. Beckwith, thanks a lot for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Well, thank you for having it's me. It's a great pleasure to have you. And, and Francis, it's always great to be with you. You know, it's just... Uh, Look forward to a time when you and I can sit down again and, and uh, talk about the good things that God has been doing in our lives. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank all of you for joining us on this program. I do pray that this has been an encouragement to you because we can't escape the fact that if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, then people see us and they look at us and they hear us. And what is our witness but to be gentleness and reverent and honoring Christ as Lord. God bless you. See you next week.